When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. At Stangy Law Firm, we represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri. You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. This episode of Mission Log is sponsored by Masterclass. This holiday, give one annual membership and get one free. Go to masterclass.com slash mission log today. That's masterclass.com slash mission log. Terms apply. This episode is also brought to you by Star Trek Spirits. Visit StarTrekSpirits.com today to preview the all-new Romulan Vodka and Romulan Rye. Take 10% off your order with special code Roddenberry at StarTrekSpirits.com. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 469, Death Wish. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Q. And I'm Q. No, you're not. I'm Q. Well, that's what I was getting at. You're Q, but I'm Q. Oh, uh, of course. I, I missed that part. Very well. Carry on, Q. Oh, thank you, Q. Each week on Mission Log, Q and I will pick apart an episode of Star Trek, breaking it down for morals, meanings, and messages contained therein. This week, Death Wish, the one in which Q wants to die. He does? Well, yes, but but not that Q, the other Q. Oh, oh uh, thank you, Q, for clearing that up. Well, certainly. Well, before I share trivia, Q will tell all of you mortals how to reach us. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek. Drop us a line at missionlog at roddenberry.com and join us on Twitter and Facebook at Mission Log Pod. While you're at it, leave us a review and a rating at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And please remember your comments could be used on Mission Log or Engage on the Roddenberry YouTube channel. And now, here is Q with this week's trivia. Uh, thank you, Q. All right, today's episode, Death Wish. We have a story by Sean Piller, and this isn't the first time we've heard Sean's name. No, no, he did get a credit on the TNG episode Journey's End, but it was this episode that more so he took hand in the pitch and the full concept. Of course, it helps when your father is a producer on Star Trek, and Sean knew that the show was looking for a way to bring Q into the series, but do something different. The point was to create a story that explored Q, not just have Q drop in to mess with a Starship crew. And yes, while Sean had an in, he had to go through the same process as every other writer and actually pitch the story to the whole team. And it was their decision, especially Jerry Taylor's, to actually buy it. So the story definitely fulfilled a need, but Sean was still very new to the business and had not yet written a script. So the teleplay assignment went to Michael Piller, because of course it did. Even Michael knew that he couldn't just hand over a responsibility like that to Sean. 
as his first outing. Now, it was directed by James L. Conway, and Jim, we've talked about a few times. He directed three TNG episodes and seven on DS9, including Duet and Little Green Men. On Voyager, he most recently directed Persistence of Vision, and he's got just one more on this series, bringing his total to four until we catch him again on Enterprise. Now, we do have some location shooting. Uh, that was done in Lancaster, California. That's just northeast of Santa Clarita, not quite as far as if you were heading toward Edwards Air Force Base. Uh, the building, by the way, that was already there. That is a location known as Club Ed, and it is used in a lot of shoots. So you may have seen it before. Now, let's talk about some of our historic references in this episode. Uh, Thaddeus Riker and the Battle of Pine Mountain. Now, William Riker does call out a specific real thing, which was New York's 102nd Regiment. Now, Thaddeus Riker, as far as we know, is not actually a part of that regiment, but the regiment was indeed real, as was General Sherman's march on Atlanta. And let me tell you that still until this day, there is a great deal of controversy about what happened there. I do want to mention, though, that just personally, when he called it the Battle of Pine Mountain, well, that was quite a surprise to me. My entire father's side of the family is from Pine Mountain, Georgia, and our farm is still there. However, I had to dig a little bit deeper. Pine Mountain is usually not what that battlefield is called. Pine Hill or Pine Knob is in Cobb County, which is closer to Atlanta, sort of between Atlanta and Marietta. So it was on the way of that march. Pine Mountain, Georgia, which is where my family are from, that is actually in southwest Georgia. So not related, but it certainly surprised me when I heard that name very specific in the show. Let's see. Then, of course, there's Woodstock, 1969. Of course, the concert did happen. And there was plenty of power for the stage. Uh, in fact, too much power because with the rain, there was nearly uh, an electrocution of many, many people who were there. In fact, some of the players in the Grateful Dead were getting uh, shocked by touching their instruments that were connected to power. And finally, uh, Sir Isaac Newton, well, yeah, he did not die in Liverpool and he was not a suspect in prostitute murders. So rest assured, that part of history did not play out either. Well, let's meet our guest stars. Uh, Sir Isaac Newton makes an appearance. Uh, okay, not really Sir Isaac, but rather the actor portraying him, Peter Dennis. English-born and trained at the Royal Academy, Peter has a long list of credits in feature films and TV, but he didn't permanently move to the U.S. until the early 90s, which then led to shows, well, like this one, and Melrose Place and Santa Barbara and Seinfeld showing up on his resume. In 1976, he read a selection of A.A. A. Milne's Winnie the Pooh at Cambridge University that was so well-received that he started a popular touring one-man show called Bother, in which he read the stories to adoring audiences, and Peter passed away in 2008. We also meet Maury Ginsburg, played by Maury Ginsburg. And no, uh, Maury Ginsburg was not someone who worked at Woodstock that we know of, though there could very well have been a Maury Ginsburg in attendance. This Maury Ginsburg is an actor, and the role he is playing here was named after him because the writers liked his name. So this Maury Ginsburg got his on-screen start in the mid-90s, racking up guest appearances, later recurring roles on Jessica Jones and All My Children Followed, and more recently, you may have seen him on Law & Order. 
And then, as if it were Star Trek Jeopardy, we have three returning champions. Fresh from pre-production on Star Trek First Contact, Jonathan Frakes appears here as William Riker, not to be confused with Thomas Riker, who a little over a year before had appeared on DS9. We also have John Delancey as Q, making his first of three appearances in the role on Voyager. It's fun to note here that he and Kate Mulgrew had been friends for a very long time prior to this, and it was Kate who fought to get him on the show, even going so far to throw a dinner party with him and his wife and Rick Berman and his wife in order to lobby them to make it happen. This was the first time in their long friendship that the two had actually worked together professionally. And finally, in the role of Q, or Q2, later referred to as Quinn, we have Garrett Graham. If you don't remember the face, that's because the last time you saw him, he was under a lot of prosthetics in the DS9 episode Captive Pursuit, in which he was the hunter. We mentioned then that Garrett has this wildly varied career, having worked as everything from a voice actor to a set builder to a writer on some Disney animated features. Early in his career, you may remember that he was the rock star Beef in Brian De Palma's Phantom of the Paradise. And that was shortly before he popped up in Paul Bartel's Cannonball, not to be confused with the Cannonball run that came out a few years later. He and Peter Dennis also share an A.A. Milne connection since Winnie the Pooh was Garrett's stage debut when he was eight years old. This is Garrett's last Star Trek appearance. Welcome to the Delta Quadrant. No one aboard Voyager is allowed to do anything here, not even dying. Prologue. There's a comet off Voyager's port bow, but its behavior is not quite normal. That prompts Janeway to ask for a sample to be beamed aboard, and Balana obliges by going to the transporter room. She beams aboard a man in a Starfleet uniform who walks right past the containment field and introduces himself as Q. Act 1. Everybody knows what that means. Red alert is called, and before anything can be done about it, Q has already transported himself and Captain Janeway to the mess hall. In there, he's graciously set the table for dinner, and he's showing incredible curiosity about Voyager's crew, who are all mortal. You see, he's grateful that Janeway has set him free of his captivity, and now what he wants is to die. Janeway confronts him. She knows all about the tricks Q plays, but this one assures her he isn't that Q, the one who toyed with the Enterprise. All he wants is to die. And he addresses the room with his final words, then he strikes a pose to whisk his fingers into a bit of Q magic, but he doesn't die. He remains while all the men on board disappear. His powers are flagging, unpredictable. When the captain demands that the rest of her crew return, he tries again, but fails. He does manage to whisk them back to the bridge, where he says he must be going, and that he doesn't know how to return the men of Voyager. But maybe someone could. Someone who had more experience with humans, and as if on cue, Q pops onto the bridge. Uh, The first cue, 
the one who annoyed Jean-Luc Picard all those years, and he asked Q, the other Q, what he has done now. Act 2. Q, the Q we already know, is surprised to be on Voyager in the Delta Quadrant. He pokes around the bridge, taking shots of the people around him in his way, and he is even so gracious as to restore the missing male crew members. It's then that the other Q chimes in that he is here seeking asylum, protection from his enemy, Q. With the raise of a finger, new Q whisks himself and Voyager away to a hiding place, far back in time to the birth of the universe. But Q finds him there and reveals he hid there from the continuum, too. In fact, he knows all the hiding places. As Voyager's position at the Big Bang becomes more perilous, they are saved with another spark of Q's energy. This time, they are tethered to a plant, a tree, a Christmas tree to be more precise, They've shrunk down, and there's Q holding them aloft like an ornament, warning that they can't hide. Janeway has had quite enough and tells Q, both of them, that she won't allow her ship to be used in their tug-of-war. Before these two can go at it again, she calls for a proper hearing, the same procedure that any Starfleet captain would follow in the case where someone asks for asylum. The stakes are high, but both Q agree. If he loses his appeal for asylum, Q will be returned to confinement. If he wins, Q will be granted mortality by the continuum. And in that case, he will commit suicide. Janeway will ultimately decide his fate. Act 3. New Q drops in on Tuvok in his quarters, unannounced, much to Tuvok's understated annoyance. He wants the Vulcan to appear as his advocate, his representative in the hearing about his asylum. After all, Tuvok knows Federation law, and Vulcans approve of suicide in some cases. Not that this hearing is about that. Cut to the hearing getting underway. Janeway lays out the rules, like not turning this into a circus. More importantly, she asks why this Q should want to kill himself if, indeed, she does grant him asylum. He says she can't understand, but immortality is the problem. It's unbearable for him, especially seen as an obligation to the Q continuum. Q then rises from his seat and calls himself to the stand. Rather, the first Q snaps a duplicate of himself into existence for the purpose of testimony. His argument is that immortality is one of the defining characteristics of the Q, and the other Q's death would have unforeseen consequences, to which new Q says, yes, that's partly the whole point, to snap the continuum out of complacency. Q then tries another tactic, painting the new Q's desire as, by definition, mentally unbalanced. Tuvok quickly shoots down the logic of his assertion, and Janeway agrees that the desire for death alone does not make one unbalanced. As Tuvok continues his questioning, he reveals that in the continuum, the Q have executed other Q for extreme crimes, even though the death of the perpetrator did not destroy the continuum. Likewise, he sees no logic in a system that would condemn an individual's right to die while upholding capital punishment. Finally, Tuvok's questioning reveals that Q himself was once accused of being mentally unstable, to which Q can only reply that his record was expunged. The questioning for this witness is over, and the duplicate disappears. Q then calls additional witnesses— 
Sir Isaac Newton, Maury Ginsburg, and our very own commander, William T. Riker. They've all been plucked from their own existence and brought here, and they will return with no memory of the proceedings. Only Riker, of course, is immediately familiar with Q. What he reveals in his questioning is that along the way, this second Q has had an effect on these three human lives and presumably many more. He was there when the apple fell on Newton's head. He was there when Mari's car broke down and he needed a lift to Woodstock and just happened to be the guy who noticed an unplugged power cable. Finally, he was the same Q who saved Riker's ancestor in the Civil War, allowing this Riker to exist at all. So Q has made his point that the other Q has a life that has impacted other lives, though he's been in confinement for the last three centuries and unable to affect anyone. The confinement aspect inspires Tuvok to show the group, over Q's objection, exactly what his client faces— a wave of new Q's hand, and they find themselves inside that strange comet, squeezed together in the cold. It's quite enough for Janeway. Those conditions are brutal, and the captain asks that they be brought back to the hearing room on Voyager. She agrees that imprisonment in that comet would be awful, but that's not the judgment she's here to make. She's stuck. She can't see that our new Q is suffering in pain or in any condition that would merit his desire for death. Tuvok, needing time, asks for a recess to formulate a response with his client, and it's over lunch that they come up with a novel idea to take the hearing into the continuum itself. Act 4. Janeway calls Q to her ready room with a proposal. What if the continuum just allows the other Q back, welcome him into their society? No confinement, no punishment. Then she wouldn't have to grant asylum or condemn him to a life in prison. Q is uninterested, though. No deal. He does have a counteroffer, though. Rule against asylum, and the continuum will send Voyager home. That gives Janeway pause at least something else to consider on the next stop, which is a visit into the continuum itself. Well, the two Q agree that it will be a representation of the continuum that mere mortals can comprehend. It's a lonely desert road somewhere. Could be Depression-era America. The people gathered outside a house are quiet, bored, mechanically playing through games or reading, by Janeway's estimation, nobody is suffering, but Q2 explains there is nothing happening here. Nothing to be said, nothing to be learned, not even sadness exists. Even Q had his own moment of rebellion, but he says he snapped back into line and is now a born-again Q. Q2 explains further that his radical ideas about self-determination and self-termination were so dangerous to the state that is the continuum that they banished him. He shows a magazine column representing his philosophy to Janeway, his very last column that was titled, I'm ready to die, how about you? He puts his dilemma into terms that Janeway would understand as an explorer herself. If there was nothing left to explore, could she live like that for eternity? Immortality in this case is the disease, he says. Both Q, Janeway, and Tuvok are returned to the hearing room, and the session is adjourned until the morning when Janeway will deliver her decision. Act 5. 
Janeway's night is sleepless, especially so when Q appears in her bed, using the opportunity to harass her as well as bend her ear about the offer from the continuum. He talked to the others, and he promises that they will take care of him if he is released back to them, no confinement, and in return, Voyager will be sent home. Then he tries to make the offer a bit more personal, prompting Janeway to give a one-word response, leave. The next day at the hearing, Janeway tries one last time to put all the cards on the table. It's an emotional consideration to be sure. And it's not about suicide in her mind. It is about asylum. But they all know the outcome. And that outcome could have a profound impact on the continuum. So how does she reconcile this with the rights of the individual Q? She honestly sympathizes with his plight. And because she has witnessed for herself the road his existence will take, she has no choice but to offer asylum. Q is stunned, but Q is pleased. There's no more to deliberate, and Q strips the other of his powers. Now immortal, Jamie offers him one piece of advice. Explore. Experience this new form of existence. Don't be so quick to end it. To start his new life on board, Q is given a name, Quinn, and Janeway and Chakotay discuss what role he could fulfill as part of the crew. But an urgent call comes from the EMH. Quinn is in sickbay, dying. He took a fatal dose of rare Nogach hemlock. There is no antidote. Quinn says his farewell, that this moment is his final gift to his people. Once he is gone, Tuvok asks the doctor where Quinn would get such a poison. The answer comes from Q. Popping into sickbay one last time, he says he gave it to him. Then he learns something from this cue about courage, about conviction. Now he hopes this moment uneases the continuum. And before he goes, he tells the captain that they will meet again. The end. Nice job with the recap, John. I know that maybe, we, maybe we'll put like our own subtitles into the podcast if that's possible, where <laughs> they know that Q and Q2 and Quinn are completely different well q2 and quinn are the same yeah. character but q2 and quinn are the same and that is a cool like in the script he was q2 and in the subtitles if you watch it like that it is q2 mm-hmm. and it's kind of funny to me that they give him a name at the very end yeah <laughs> because it retroactively my impulse was to refer to him as quinn in the recap but you can't do that no but we can now so we can yeah. like in we can our observations we'll, and things like that it'll just be quinn we can do that yeah. so I know that we mentioned Q a lot, and there's a name that we haven't mentioned in quite some time, and I think that we had an opportunity here for him to get a little bit of coverage, and that would be Baxter. The reason why I bring up Baxter. Oh, (laughs) okay. All right. What's he up to? They got to knock on the gym door. I'll tell you what. What he wasn't up to is something that he could have done for Balana. It's kind of like... I get that they have to have like contracted uh, actors like get their contractual obligations on screen. Sure. But did they really have to send like Balana to go to the transporter room to do the thing that she did? And then all of a sudden there was a transporter chief there. And then it's not like she was surprised that Q showed up, but she should have been, but she really wasn't. But Baxter, Baxter would have done something. <laughs> he could have done something. Yeah, it is so weird because uh, on the early days of the Enterprise D, you have a transporter chief. You have O'Brien. O'Brien. He's there doing his thing. Yep. How many times in this show have we seen somebody else 
run into the transporter room and push the transporter chief out of the way. Like that's his whole job. Too many times. I'm telling you. Yeah. But it is interesting. You you can tell in the script how uh, obviously so much of the action is Q, Q, Janeway, and Tuvok. Mm -hmm. And then you have to fit in Chakotay somewhere. So you give him a scene at the end. And you have to fit in the EMH. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So you give him a scene, which are good scenes, but they're they're so small. Right. Yeah, exactly. I do have to say that it it is – Really a shorthand for us, the audience, but I'm amused that in universe, there's still a reputation for the Q. You know, just as Voyager has a reputation in the Delta Quadrant, everybody knows about Q. Like, they've all heard the stories, and they're all on edge about encountering. And this is like, <laughs> how, how much time in, in the Academy or elsewhere are they reading reports and like, man, this keeps happening to Jean-Luc Picard. Thank God I'm not on the Enterprise. Oh, Great, now we got our own cue. It would have been yeah. funny if he was treated like the way that Quark was treated at you know, at the very <laughs> beginning of Caretaker, where he was we were warned about the Ferengi, you know, at the Academy. Yeah, uh, right. You know, we yeah. were warned about Q. Yeah. Mm. I have so many Q questions, John. Oh, ooh, mm. nice did. Yeah, you had a Q's looking for A's. Mm. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh I'm gonna I'm gonna do these in rapid succession. Yeah, you know, feel free to uh, jump in at any time or hear them all in one uh, one rapid sure. fire question. So one, okay, how exactly does transporter technology bypass Q level magical security to free Quinn from his prison? <laughs> Next, two, <laughs> why did this Q appear in a Voyager era Starfleet uniform if he's never met them before? Next, <laughs> three, how did Balana's com badge chirp when Quinn spoke into it, but he never touched it? Ooh, next. Four. Why not in something befitting of an otherworldly being? I'm talking about Q here. It was never implied that he took the form of someone who could blend in and not feel threatening. Delancey's Q has earned that through his character. So he wears the uniform. Mm. You know, he looks human. This particular Q could have been anything. Mm. Right? Okay. And next. Do they all get their own signature hand gesture? Uh, yes, just ask Olivia Dabo because she had to come up with it. There you go. So those are my. So, yeah, there you go. Uh, th- those are great questions, actually. And, and, you know, obviously a lot of this just has to get chalked up to script magic mm-hmm. uh, because that's what the script called for. And maybe they spent too much time explaining all of that. But the transporter thing is very weird, though, because you'd think that that, that cell, that containment comet that he's in, I kept thinking of it like the. Um, oh, containment comet. Uh, that's a super good sound. Comet. Yeah. That, that's a good – you can have that as a mm. band name that, that's out there for all – I was thinking of it like the Phantom Zone yeah. from uh, Superman. Mm. You know, And how could you actually break it? Would it take a nuclear blast? What would it take? But here, no, you just beam them out and the transporter just goes, oh, look, a person. Yeah. Get that one. You know? And I know that it sounds very nitpicky and it is and you can send all the nitpicky emails to me. But these are kind of things that we as fans, we kind of want a little bit of an explanation for. I mean – John Delancey's Q has earned all that since Encounter at Farpoint, right? So that's just now you're dealing with other Q, and we obviously have seen other Q before. It just seems like there could have been, I don't know, a more reasonable explanation for the ease of his escape. I don't know. Yeah. Okay, look, I'm going to do something here on air that we rarely ever do, and that's going to say that I I have read ahead now to both of our next notes, which are similar. Mm -hmm. I'm going to strike it because this whole topic, spoiler, sexism, that's going to come up in the next section (laughs) because I think it's just weird. It plays strangely. So let's come back to that in the next section. So hold on, folks, and we'll get there. Instead, let's do what we do in this segment. Let's talk about food. Indeed. Uh (laughs) Welsh rabbit. Okay. So, yeah. Okay. So being a being yeah. a parent of two, 
anytime I see like a rabbit dish just kind of perks my ears up. I'm like, okay, am I going to look at this? Am I going to address this? (laughs) Right. So I've heard this as Welsh rabbit. I've also heard this Mm -hmm. particular uh, dish uh, described as Welsh rarebit. Yeah. Yeah. And you are not wrong. So as the old story goes, and I think it's just apocryphal, Mm. but I would love to find uh, a source for it. As the old story goes, the name of the dish is Welsh rabbit because way, way, way back in the day when you had a lot of uh, peasants who didn't have the money or the resources to get fresh game, Mm. they couldn't just go out and hunt for a rabbit or some other food to have meat with their dinner, right? So what they would do is they would concoct this thing, which later got the name Welsh rabbit, later becoming Welsh rarebit, where you take a chunk of old cheese, kind of, you know, dried out, a little, little, yeah, it's like maybe not the best stuff and you mix it with ale or sometimes with uh, whatever you know wine whatever alcohol you have on board to make a sauce so you have something rich you have something that would serve as a main and you pour it over some bread maybe not the best bread again but then that became a staple that became a dish for the poorer folks who could not afford or were not allowed to go hunt for game so there you go that that's the story that i've always heard and let me tell you by the way Welsh rarebit mm-hmm. at Musso and Frank, washed down, may- maybe just to serve as that buffer before a martini. That's the way to See, go. See, that's the funniest thing yeah. about a food like this. It's like peasant food of that era has been tried, yeah. has been kind of like uh, deconstructed and reconstructed into like halt cuisine. <laughs> it's so strange. Yeah, the right. irony is there. Right. However, there are also right. names, there are a few names that uh, you may know this as. You have English rabbit, mm-hmm. Scotch rabbit, buck rabbit in the 24th and a half century. <laughs> Golden Buck, and for all of you aspiring uh-huh. musicians out there, for your next album name, Blushing Bunny. Oh, nice. Very mm-hmm. good. Very good. And, and I think, if I'm not mistaken, a lot of those variations have to do with what alcohol you use to stretch out that cheese okay. sauce. So, yeah. Anyway, go go make your own. Enjoy it. It's a lovely dish. little toast. Yeah, it's great. Enjoy. Mm-hmm. Great on a cold day. All right. So that concludes food talk for this episode. Maybe. So there was something that came up that humans shouldn't be in the Delta Quadrant for another 100 years. Yep. And for that matter, uh, immediately following that line of dialogue, that Riker should be in command. Yep. Now, did he mean that Riker should be in command of Voyager, or he should be in command of a mission to the Delta Quadrant in 100 years? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Maybe maybe so. Interesting. There was a lot of rapid fire details that, you know, may or may not be addressed later on. We don't know because we haven't jumped forward ahead in time, you know, as we are not allowed to do in a way on our mission log. Yeah, but yeah. the thing is, though, John, I'm going to bring up an episode that we talked about tattoo, and I know that you know both you mm-hmm. and I have an issue with uh, a lot of these great human achievements, especially human evolution, like kind of like being co-opted by like alien interference. Yeah, in this yeah. episode, I take great exception to Sir Isaac Newton <laughs> uh, having to share responsibility of the uh, of the discovery of gravity with a Q. Yeah, right. Yeah, I'm so I get it. And that that immediately rankled me. I I think I'm still slightly on the fence about that only because in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, was Q able to identify that Isaac Newton was the person with the foresight 
with the intelligence, with the ability to construct these ideas about gravity, physics, etc. And what he needed was literally that push. He needed to just kind of knock into that tree to make sure the apple fell at the right time, as opposed to magic alien DNA <laughs> literally changing the course of evolution. I, I'm a little like... I, I generally I hate it when you have alien influence on humanity. I want humans to stand on their own to achieve the things on their own. Right. This one I keep going back and forth about. Yeah. I really just do. a you know yeah. just one of those kind of things where maybe if the queue mm-hmm. were never there again, like the guy from Woodstock yeah. never would have done his thing. And Riker, okay, so I have to be honest, <laughs> and I know that I know there are a lot of Riker fans out there. I'm not. I'm not. You know. I'm not going after Riker himself as a character mm-hmm. or Jonathan Frakes as an actor. I just felt that his appearance in this episode was nothing more than fan casting or a fan bit mm-hmm. moment. Mm-hmm. He didn't even reference, or Q didn't even reference that he gave them the power of or gave Riker the power of Q in what the first season of TNG that he tempted. Riker with the power of Q. He didn't bring that up at all. Yeah. And then Riker gave it up, right. <laughs> which actually would presumably influence Janeway's perception of this. I was waiting too. for that moment. And then, you yeah. know, it was like, oh, yeah, you know, old Iron Boots Riker. Okay, that's great. But then yeah. again, it's another, it's another instance of Q interfering. Well, this would be Quinn. Q, Quinn interfering with the course of human evolution where he shouldn't have been in the first place. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so it's just exactly. weird. And yeah, yeah, I mean, you literally could have taken Riker's involvement from the entire scene out and it doesn't change yeah. the story. But yeah, if you referenced his power that he was granted by the Q, it totally changes, I think, Janeway's uh, her deliberations. Yeah. I think it does, too. Yeah, that that would have been an interesting thread to follow. Let's see. Quinn reveals – I thought this was something that we didn't get too deeply into. Quinn reveals that the Q may look omnipotent to someone like Tuvok. But they are definitely not. Mm. And I, I, I think it, this was a fascinating path to go down, which we really didn't get to go down too far. Because, I, I mean, look, for the purposes of the script, it sets up that the Q in general have limitations, which is great because in a script can't just come along and go, oh, they can do anything. And they are impervious to all things, yeah. <laughs> you know, because then you just you have a, a, an antagonist that isn't that interesting. But I thought that that reveal was uh, something crucial to how we then frame the rest of the Q throughout Star Trek's history. I think they were trying to build, yeah, they're trying to build that back door into the Q being sympathetic. Because if you create mm-hmm. like an all-powerful, yep. you know, omnipotent, unstoppable force, how do you yep. write for that? But, okay, so I've got to put that aside. That's later for the discussion. But here's something I found mm-hmm. that was interesting. So Quinn said that, um, he said that Vulcans approve of suicide, and Tuvok says it's true that Vulcans who reach a certain infirmity with age do practice ritual suicides. Did we know this prior to this episode? I don't think we did. So it's setting a precedent Uh, for Vulcans now uh, in canonical history of Star Trek. Which you can see them very much justifying with logic. I, I think that's, you know, the, the interesting aspect of that. I'm totally going to fail here at making a segue, but I have no other way to get to this point in my notes. <laughs> Why does Q sometimes have very dark lipstick on? In some scenes, it's just very pronounced here. Yeah. And um, it was distracting to me. But, you know, I, 
makeups change from day to day. Sometimes it looked better than mm-hmm. others. Sometimes it looked yeah. worse. Uh, also, I have to point out the double face palm by Q, completely inspired. I love it. I love that. Is that moment. a GIF? It has oh, to be Vulcans. a GIF somewhere. It has to be. If it's not, somebody please mm-hmm. make it. I do find, and you know, we might get into this in our further discussion, the idea that Tuvok calls out, you find nothing contradictory in a society that outlaws suicide, but practices capital punishment. Yeah, uh, I thought that. Yeah, <laughs> I thought that was a great moment to call out because there are places still on Earth in the 21st century where suicide is illegal, mm-hmm. and. Some of those countries do have capital punishment. Mm-hmm. And then I, I I love the illogic of this line that Q says to Q, you could live a perfectly normal life if you were simply willing to live a perfectly normal life. Yeah. 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 What a tragic, but a brilliantly inspired bit of illogic. That entire yeah. – like trial scene, if you want to call it a trial scene or the, you know, the procedural mm-hmm. scene, the hearing, the hearing. Yeah, yeah. it was just filled with some incredibly well-written dialogue. And I know that it must've been so tough for you to like, just not stop and like analyze like almost scene after scene after scene. Oh my God. I had to. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, that, yeah. that is crazy. great writing. Yeah. Here's yeah. something that wasn't great writing in my opinion, <laughs> because it has to do with the whole, again, like how many, how many uh, worlds or species did the Q involve themselves with? Q said, we're dealing here with the most dangerous man in the continuum. Now, I didn't want to tell you, and I didn't tell you this, but one of his self-destructive stunts created a misunderstanding which ignited the hundred-year war between the Romulans and the Vulcans. Come on. I mean, come on. Like, yeah. does it ha- like, here's yeah. the, it's like the Skywalker syndrome. Do you have to like weave uh, the cue right. with every single thing Into that happens everything. in the universe that we know of in Star Trek? Because it really gets a little – it gets a little – tired at this point yeah you know see that that's a moment that absolutely would drive me more insane than isaac yeah. newton but yeah yeah absolutely i get it i do have to say i love the details of the continuum uh the fashions the clock with no hands the pinball machine a lot of it just very clever and very twilight zone i think back to a tos episode like specter of the mm-hmm. gun where okay how are you going to show this complex thing well, you do that by making it dead simple, yeah. making it surreal rather than real. Thought of it very. Clever. I thought they uh, yeah. they put an. I, I called it like the DS Nine, the profit filter. So like every time they go into the profit realm, it's just this very <laughs> soft focus and very just, high contrast. Just white. Yeah, white. yeah. Like, I like yeah. the Earth croquet ball because it reminded me yeah, in right. shorthand of like that the marble, like the the galaxy marble in Orion's belt from Men in Black. Yes. Yeah. You just. Very it's clever. just weird. You're right. It's like very abstract, but it seemed to work mm-hmm. in this case. Yeah. Yeah. Also, I, I want to go to this moment at the very end because, you know, we cut right to the scene where Q2, where Quinn is dying in sickbay. And then we get the reveal of what happened with the Q that we know. And part of me is glad that they didn't show it, but I'm also very curious. I want to know what that conversation was like when Q showed up with Hemlock in Quinn's room, because we've seen our Q go through a big change in this episode. How did he express himself in the, should we call it a gift that he was giving to Quinn? I have a question for you, though, about that before we wrap, yeah. the, wrap up this segment. Is this something that's locked out of the replicator? Yes. Okay. Yeah, they did say that you cannot get it in the replicator. So uh, they, they covered their tracks okay. there for sure. 
I can't believe that the Q continuum is such a backwater that it doesn't even have a stuckies. We'll get right back to Death Wish, but first a word from this week's sponsor, Masterclass. Norman, I'm very excited to welcome Masterclass as a sponsor to Mission Log. What an incredible service where you get to choose a few classes like I did, like you did, check Mm -hmm. them out online and learn, well, just anything that sparks your interest. So uh, tell me about what you've done. Well, with Masterclass, you can learn from the world's best minds anytime, anywhere, and at your own pace. You can learn the art of voice acting from Nancy Cartwright, or you can improve the science of better sleep because we all need better sleep with Matthew Walker. Or perhaps you want to trace your roots through food and learn why you love what you eat with Michael W. Twitty. So we have over 180 classes from a range of world-class instructors for the thing that you've always wanted to do. And it's closer than you think. Yeah, I mean, this is what I love. I I could go online to masterclass.com. I could load up the app. You can even do it on your smart TV, download an app there. And uh, honestly, the, the categories and the topics feel like they are endless. I picked some ones that uh, definitely spoke to my interest. Uh, Marcus Brownlee, who I love doing uh, oh, yeah. uh, technology reviews. But in Masterclass, mm-hmm. he teaches you how to make better online videos and really gets into the technical nitty-gritty. I also picked some courses by uh, Dr. Cornell West about philosophy, uh, which hopefully will be very useful uh, the further we go in Mission Log. And I uh, got to say, you know, you mentioned a food one. I picked a food one, too. Uh, Gordon Ramsay, and I I, got to say that uh, when I make scrambled eggs now, I make Gordon Ramsay scrambled eggs, and uh, they're worth the time and effort, definitely. Mm -hmm. So what's so cool is that you are in control. You get to pick the courses that you want, the topics that you want, and get to know these instructors, and you can do them anytime, like you said, Norman, at your own pace. The other thing that I like is that they are so well made. The video quality is nice. The audio quality is great. They feel really personal, but informative and instructive. I mean, if I may, just being able to, again, have these quality videos and have these quality classes uh, in a way that you can learn at your own pace in your own time frame, but also feel the personal touch That's the most important thing that I got out of it. You felt that personal touch, like I'm having a one-on-one conversation with my instructor. Yes. Yeah. That's important. That is. That is. And like I said, you can go at your own pace. You can pick the topics that intrigue you. I, I, as soon as we got into this, I thought of five people who I thought would appreciate a membership for this, especially Mm -hmm. as we're getting into the holiday season. This is a great gift. You're giving the gift of learning and it's fantastic. So share it with yourself, share it with others, give it as a gift. The people at Masterclass have been kind enough to promote this where you can give a membership and get a free membership. So give a one year, give an annual membership and get one for free. Go to masterclass.com slash mission log today. Again, that's masterclass.com slash mission log terms apply. I promise you, you're going to learn something fantastic. So, you know, John, we are also really excited to announce a new sponsor for Mission Log, Star Trek Spirits. I am very excited to announce them as a new sponsor. We have been friends with those guys for a while, and they've got some new products to show off. 
What we want to tell everyone right now are about two products in particular, Romulan Rye and Romulan Vodka, both in exquisite, gorgeous, individually lumber bottles, limited edition bottles that look just like the props that you would have seen on the original series and more. Yeah. Uh, these are super cool. So custom design, handmade bottles. I mean, what's awesome is they went back and, and looked at the archives, looked at the original props like you saw in Star Trek II, and made this gorgeous bottle with metallic gold hot stamping, and then filled them with some world-class spirits. I, I was very interested to read that the vodka comes from Napa, and it is distilled four times. And then they have this new technique with the rye, where they're doing a vacuum distillation distillation process. Uh, so really exciting spirits in those bottles. And by far the most technically challenging product that these folks have done so far for Star Trek. Now we know that their mission is creating a new line of ultra premium spirits worthy of the Star Trek universe. And it's a bit hand in hand of, you know, exploring this universe and reimagining old classics and producing a line of spirits that will be sought out by spirit enthusiasts and Star Trek fans alike. So here's the thing. These launch the week of November 21st, 2022. That is Thanksgiving week, just in time for a holiday shipment. Now, depending on when you hear this podcast, you can either go there to StarTrekSpirits.com and see the full lineup of products or add your name to the list and be notified immediately when that site launch happens. And act now. Believe me, they will sell out. And it goes even one step further than this, John, because something for a lot of us enthusiasts, what we've always wanted after the product is enjoyed, we've always wanted to have that bottle on our own personal bar or on our shelf or somewhere as a collectible. And did you know that the Star Trek Spirits team put these bottles through the most demanding, meticulous, metallic gold hot stamping process to put the Romulan logo directly onto the glass? And for the topper, the topper, that little bitty detail, they used a functional Vino glass seal topper. Yeah, it, it's so cool. You I, just trust me, you do not want to miss out on this. Anybody who hears this, so you know what to do. Visit StarTrekSpirits.com today to preview the all new Romulan vodka and Romulan rye. Take 10% off your order with the special code Roddenberry at checkout. Again, that's StarTrekSpirits.com. Use the checkout code Roddenberry to take 10% off your order. All right, Norman, uh, let's talk about, uh, well, Gosh, how do we even get into this? Uh, the, Just the jump right into it. All right. The topic that I <laughs> skipped, <laughs> I know sometimes you got to get up, rip that yeah. Band-Aid off. Exactly. The thing that we skipped in the last segment is the odd sexism on display by Q. Mm -hmm. And I have to wonder, here we are 25 plus years later after this episode aired. And yeah, you know, in 1996, early 1996, it was still fresh and new and intriguing that we had the first woman captain leading a show, captain of a starship. This was something that Star Trek, it, it, it seemed was well overdue to give us on TV. Yeah. And we bring in a character like Q. And of course, Q has to be antagonistic. He has to be a little annoying. He has to be kind of the biggest presence in the room. But there was something really strange about hearing these lines come from Q. 
I, I will start with, I guess that's what we get by having a woman in the captain's seat. I know. I, it's Q is, by definition, in the Star Trek universe, the smartest, most powerful, all-knowing being that we have ever encountered. Yeah. Why would something like dumb, sexist jokes that belong if they belonged anywhere the mid-20th century, and even then they're cringy, why would they belong or be even relevant to somebody like Q? Are they trying to make him the villain at the start of this episode so that we would sympathize with Quinn's predicament? Well, I, I think definitely there's something in the script that is directing us to feel a little graded upon by this presence of Q. I get that. Like uh, he, it, it, a moment like this is designed for the audience to be on Janeway's side and not on Q's side. Mm-hmm. I, I get that. At the same time, it felt so anachronistic um, mm-hmm. for for anyone on Star Trek, but even Q. Even when you have a character like Q who is supposed to be needling our lead character, there was this. Uh attitude in you know the late 90s 1996 and it was really we were hoping that star trek would be better than that you know because Mm -hmm. that's the reason why many of us have come to star trek to find examples you know of our storytelling that don't go to these depths to create you know villains that go to these you know particular like lanes and their personifications of uh of being this these irascible characters but there was just something about the late 1990s, like 1995 to 2000, mm-hmm. before, before 9-11, mm-hmm. where this kind of tongue-in-cheek sexism and homophobia still seemed to be pervasive inside entertainment. It, it's sort of the idea of I'm making the joke because I think the joke is funny, but part of why I'm doing it is to indicate to you that I know that it's wrong that I'm making that joke. Bingo. You know, so exactly. I, I can get yeah. away. I can get away with this thing that's off color because I'm sort of doing the, the wink that indicates that I know that it's wrong. But at the end of the day, you're still doing the damn joke. <laughs> and it mm-hmm. just it just doesn't play. well. And, and there are more incidents and they, they all feel clunky when he says, now, I guess we get to find out whether the pants really fit. And he, he sort of looks at her from behind that that was uncomfortable calling her Madam Captain. Yeah. Yeah. When he eyeballed Janeway in yeah. that way, yeah. I'm like, oh, what, what are they? Are they lifting like his character from like the house that rocks the cradle? Because John Delancey yeah. was that sexist, you know, uh, OBGYN and that. I'm like, yeah. you're, you're kind of typecasting him now in this way where what's the cue that we're supposed to expect next after this episode? Yeah. Yeah, right. Right. Now, and don't get me wrong, I, I do think that it is an interesting and probably valid choice to say that this instance of Q in this situation, can he have an infatuation with Janeway? Could could that moment in the bedroom, could he genuinely think like, ooh, I, you're, you're tough, you're beautiful, I want you to look at me the same way? Like, that's okay, you're making it different from his interactions with Picard. But the digs were all coming from this very weird angle. 
So yeah. I just, glad it, it was strange, strange, strange choices. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, let's move on to some of mm-hmm. the big topics that are yeah. in this episode. Um, something that Q2 Quinn expresses, as the Q have evolved, we've sacrificed many things along the way, not just manners, but morality and a sense of purpose and a desire for change and a capacity to grow. And, of course, this speaks to the heart of the problem here, that he's experiencing this sort of universal malaise, the omnipotent ennui of the Q, if they have such a thing, which Mm -hmm. clearly he does. Mm -hmm. And it it was this interesting idea when we've talked in the past about the corruption of power on Mission Log, and usually is that seen in Star Trek. It's usually with a bigger-than-life, sometimes that mustache-twirling villain who just wants to exact revenge or exercise power over somebody else because that's just what they do. There was an angle to this that I thought was really tragic and really disturbing, which is this banality of having power but having run out of things to do so then you bring in a guy like our original q and that that really answers a lot it's like he just does these things he messes with picard he introduces the borg which okay he he kind of shares that as a favor at the end like i gave you a heads up on this but because he's got nothing better to do like any other sense of purpose is just gone. So he has to create his own drama. When you think about it that way, with the infinite power of the Q to be able to affect pretty much any species at any time at their own will and desire, just think how bored you have to become when the universe is no longer entertaining for you. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's kind of like the larger, like the scope of I think what Quinn is is trying to allude to, but I, what I do like about his character is that he's the study in Star Trek of uh, the radicalist thinker who, at times, like we we find to be the hero in certain stories. Quinn said in um, one of his later quotes in the episode, I was the greatest threat the continuum had ever known. They feared me so much they had to lock me away for t- eternity. Yeah, And there's like a wonderful just, you know, the rest continuation of that scene. But it's it kind of reminded me of in Mirror Mirror when when Kirk was trying to get through to Spock, he said every revolution, there's one man with a vision. Is this the cue? Is Quinn the cue that starts the revolution inside the continuum? Is the is he the one that starts moving certain members of the continuum into a certain mindset the way that we kind of saw? John DeLancey's cue at the end of this episode is what he did, is what Quinn did, the sacrifice he made necessary. Did he feel it was the right catalyst in order to just create some type of diversion or division inside the continuum to snap them out of this malaise? That you're talking well, that, about. That's, yeah, that, that's why I'm so interested in, in Quinn's story, because he is the iconoclast. Mm-hmm. He's the uh, really the truer deep thinker out of all of them they they have achieved such a power and such knowledge that they can't even think through something creative like breaking out of their own continuum and the continuum at that point becomes this 
strangely uh, rigid, you know, with all the power in the world, all the power in the universe, it, it has become this strangely rigid, boring place to be. It has become this, I'm saying conservative with a little c here, I'm not talking about a political party, but the strangely conservative place that cannot stand, cannot absorb a free thinker in this way to shake up what is the status quo. Like, what an awful idea is that in Star Trek, we've very often looked at these very advanced species. You've looked at the the metrons or whatever, basically indicating to humanity, like, yeah, you're not here yet. Right. But maybe someday you'll get here. Maybe someday you'll really figure it out and you'll get to this great position of power and can do all these things that you look at as miraculous. But this sounds like a nightmare that you get to that point and literally have just run out of the ability to be creative and, well, humanistic. It, Quinn is the most human of all the Q at this point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So let me pose something to you that is being kicked around in Janeway's head. Is this a show about asylum or is this a show about suicide? <laughs> because the script goes over and over the point that it's just a legal matter about asylum versus confinement, punishment that might be seen as cruel and unusual. But one of the first things that Quinn says to Tuvok, and and I'm glad you pointed this out in your notes earlier, is that Vulcans approve of suicide. And, And Tuvok even says that the infirm practice ritual suicide. I don't know if that's you know, just expected or, or, you know, what part of Colinar covers that mm-hmm. in the lesson plan? Not not quite sure. But I found it interesting that the way this story is told, Janeway is telling us, the audience, as well as the people in the room, all I have to decide about is asylum. That's it. Anything that happens after that is not in my hands. I know it will happen, but it's not my decision about whether or not this person has that right. I'm just deciding where they will spend the next moments of their life after that. Yeah. Do you think is that just the script pulling its punches a little bit to ease us into this deeper conversation? I think so. You know, that's where I felt really kind of divided in this episode because they didn't really quite define, you know, the 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 distinction between the two and like Mm -hmm. what where everyone's efforts were going towards because you know janeway kept saying that you know this trial is supposed to prove whether or not quinn is uh, eligible for asylum in the federation and first of all let's put this out there you're dealing with the q like human Mm -hmm. morality and like human like liberties or civility or civil liberties however you want to define them they can just ignore them wholesale this is at all an exercise in just our understanding of like legal ramifications of what's happening, you know, with the precedent of whether or not this is assisted suicide. So I, this is something that I, I, I tried to wrap my brain around because I feel a little uncomfortable talking about a subject matter I literally have no expertise in. But hmm. in doing our due diligence for the episode, I took a look at some online sources and I looked at the online Encyclopedia Britannica and I want to be very clear in the definition of what we're talking about. We're talking about the right to life and who has the right to stand in the way of that right as a moral of, of this entire episode. And to be clear, Mm -hmm. we're talking about euthanasia, you know, in this episode. So I want to be clear about the definition. 
Euthanasia, according to this online source, also called mercy killing, or the act or practice of painlessly putting to death persons suffering from painful and incurable disease or incapacitating physical disorder or allowing them to die by withholding treatment or withdrawing artificial life support measures. Okay, and now this is also a very, uh, very specific point. Because there is no specific provision for it in most legal systems, it is usually regarded as either suicide if performed by the patient, him or herself, or murder if performed by another. So I, uh-huh. I, I present this question to you, John, and present it to the listeners. By applying yeah. the strict definition of these terms to this episode, are we to conclude that one, Quinn's account of his forced, prolonged life by the continuum through incarceration is the equivalent to, quote, unquote, an incurable disease or incapacitating physical disorder, end quote. He describes his condition as being so when he tells Janeway, quote, when life has become futile, meaningless, unendurable, it must be allowed to end. Can't you see, Captain? For us, the disease is immortality. But here's Mm -hmm. the kicker. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Did... Did John Delancey's cue murder Quinn? Under the aforementioned strict terms of euthanasia, Q assisted Quinn's mortal death by administering poison to him and completing Quinn's request to end his now mortal life. I'm not, I'm not, this isn't a right or wrong. I'm just looking at the strict definition and the actions yeah. taken thereafter. So I am really glad that you phrased it and broke that down exactly as you did, because in your second point there, in your second question, did... Q, John Delancey's Q, murder Quinn. Okay, this episode came out in early 1996. Starting in 1994, that's when Dr. Jack Kevorkian had his first of, I want to say it was four or five trials for assisted suicide. And if you notice in the final scene in this show, it's the EMH who asks, Q, John Lancey's Q at that point, did you assist in his death? And it, it, it was not painted as murder. And this became this huge question at that time when Kevorkian started advocating for what he saw as the merciful death of these patients who were incurable, who were miserable, who were in pain, and had chosen to go down this path. And he went through you know, great hoops and hurdles to try to create devices and create scenarios where he or the attending nurse or attending physician could have as little physically to do with it as possible, but still create the conditions where the patient could make that decision. And as you're saying here, there is no correct answer to that. There is merely the legal question about whether or not he could. And if I'm not mistaken, he was acquitted on most of those. But there's obviously still in this country and in many countries, there's a question about how far that assistance can actually go. And do we call that murder or not? I think the issue with Kevorkian was that he did take the Hippocratic oath. So he was going against his oath when he was assisting, Mm -hmm. you know, in these mercy killings, quote unquote, is what they were labeled as. But in this case, with the Q, and this is kind of like my entire issue with bringing up such a obviously an important subject matter, framing it with the Q is that the Q are above Mm -hmm. the law. The Q are above any law. So it's hard to entertain why we're even discussing this and bandying this about, you know, this farcical trial of whether or not the Q are going to actually adhere to Janeway's Janeway's resolution, you know, to both of their problems and try and actually solve something because they don't have to. 
Well, but they have their own law. They have their own law, which then says, okay, if somebody if somebody steps out of line, and apparently stepping out of line in this point just means you don't want to be a part of the continuum anymore. You want to take the agency to end your own life, do your own thing, then you have to be punished. And that punishment, I think either of us, any of us would say is cruel and unusual mm-hmm. to spend eternity. Again, it's what they did with the, uh, you know, the Phantom Zone right. <laughs> and Superman, but to literally spend eternity in this prison floating through space. So they do have their own law. The question is then, okay, when you come across a starship full of humanoids and uh, and particularly a lot of humans who have their own set of laws are those things compatible can we actually make a judgment about that and i think that's where the the script is very clever in letting janeway have at least that peace of mind and to say i'm not deciding if somebody can commit suicide or not i am deciding if somebody can step out of the legal system, the political system that they're in, and come to us for protection, come to us for a new kind of life that they want. What they choose to do at that point is up to them. But here's the bigger, here's kind of like the end game question, you know, where all of these mm-hmm. deliberations lead me. And this is kind of like my biggest problem with the Q continuum as a whole. So they have one radical thinker, you know, with Quinn. Mm-hmm. But Quinn's saying that the Q continuum has gotten to a point where they have just entered this almost kind of like infinite malaise, what they need to get snapped out of. So why do the Q care at all about one person, one radical thinker that's already been like locked away in this? Why do they care if they are so affected by their own kind of like their numbness? Why do they even bother? Well, because that's exactly the thing. They they are so rigid in their thinking they are so complacent in their existence they can't they can't even comprehend the idea that somebody would step out of that i think that's what's most interesting here about john delancey's Mm -hmm. cue is that he goes back and forth from this you know uh, look here's the guy who just wanted to mess around with humanity and needle jean-luc picard as much as he could because essentially he needed the excitement but then he snapped back into line became a born again (laughs) cue but he found (laughs) right but the wonderful phrase yeah but then he found that to be uh, not unbearable, but he could at least see it through Quinn's eyes now. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's what's so interesting is that, yeah, the, the Q continuum has become such a dead place that if somebody at all decided to break the rules even a little bit, step out of line a little bit, they couldn't even comprehend it. Am I the only one who hoped Cisco would show up when Q was being his most condescending? It's good to see Riker, but Q is very punchable in this episode. Well, here we are at the end of the episode, and you got your wish, and some of you may even gotten your death wish. Oh, dun dun dun. Minus Charles Bronson, but that's a completely other death wish. So here we are, and what we do at the end of our episodes, we take a look at all of what we've discussed and see if the episode withstood the test of time and see if we actually mined any morals or meanings or messages from the episode. We had a lot to discuss. Uh, 
pretty heavy episode. Mm-hmm. So let's start with you, John, and uh, let's uh, in your best Charles Bronson impersonation. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm not going to put <laughs> you on thank the spot. You, thank you. I, I think we have to start with Garrett Graham because he has this very interesting quality. He has this vaguely James Sloyan vibe, but with a bit more whimsy, a bit friendlier seeming in this type of role. And I think he's very good in the role, but I also wonder how this would have played with an actor who could really lean into the more tragic aspects of Q's existence. We got it, but I feel like there's even more that could have been mined there. And this episode has to play this sort of balancing act between the weirdness of what the Q are and the big presence that John Delancey has as Q, but also that existential dread that Quinn has. Mm-hmm. But I, I sometimes there were certain scenes where I, I, I just felt like, okay, here's this sometimes beautiful but very challenging story that they're telling, and maybe I just wanted to feel more of what was at play rather than having all of those points explained. Again, it's a show-not-tell thing. I think they did a very good job of showing not telling in most respects, but there might have been some emotional beats that were missing for me. Now, that said, look, something that we're not going to do here is jump the timeline to the cue stories that were told a year after this episode was made or 25 years after this episode was made. But what we can do is look retrospectively at cue stories that were already made up to this point. And something that I really love in this episode is how Q2's story informs everything that we've already experienced with John Delancey's Q. So like a lot of fans, I kind of dread going back to the well with a popular idea, and then you see it beaten into the ground. But to me, we got a fresh idea here that let us rethink Q's state of mind. And you could apply that to John Delancey's Q. You could apply it to the whole continuum if you want. You think about every time that he would just show up and mess with Picard, and you go, well, why? Why is he doing this? What is he getting out of it? Well, now we get to see that through Quinn's eyes, this dread, this existential dread of where they are, and they have to spark up their their existence somehow. They have to bring some interest to their existence somehow. So overall, I think this is a very good story if you're invested in the queue. And if there's something to be entertained by here, that great. And there's some deep ideas about purpose and mortality. And at the end of the day, does any of this have any impact on our main characters on Voyager? Uh, well, if what you want is more out of the Voyager crew, maybe it doesn't fare so well in that assessment. But if what you're looking for is a way to push the Q character even further and give him, give them, give uh, all of them some depth and contemplate the the heavy ideas that are presented to us along the way, then I have to say that this episode holds up pretty beautifully for me. Now I want to hear a contrasting opinion. (laughs) I'm not sure if it's going to be as as contrasting. I just don't think that I'm as invested in this episode as you are. Mm -hmm. I understand what they're trying to do with this episode, but for me, it didn't land in that same way. It it almost felt that they were trying to do measure of a man, mm. but in this case, they were trying to create like Janeway was the the admiral that was trying to create the precedent and advocating for omnipotent life as opposed to mechanical life. But I think again, I've mentioned this before earlier on in the episode. I think the disconnect for me is that you have two omnipotent beings 
that we believe are supposed to adhere to the standard and decision of a mortal being that they can just change that person's mind with the flip of a switch or a snap or a finger wave. Mm -hmm. Why do we believe that they would actually listen to what a mortal being has to say? Because they've changed mortal beings' minds before, or they've changed entire existences with the snap of a finger. So that, to me, is like, I don't believe that whatever answer comes is an answer that either of them would be satisfied with without having the the temptation and obviously having the power to change it. And that's where I wish this episode was actually done without Delancey as Q. Mm. I have absolutely nothing against John Delancey. I think that the the character that he created up until this point is phenomenal. But I think he's just too big of a legacy personality for a story that needs a, a greater amount of attention paid to the gravitas of Quinn's request. Yeah. But every time that there's a counterpoint that's made by Delancey's Q, it's always subverted into kind of like that that standard level of insincerity that's typical for his character. And you don't get to actually breathe in the moment of of how serious some of those those scenes need to be. Well, let, let me interrupt you for just a second here. Those scenes when they're in the continuum uh, on that desert road, and you've got Quinn making his case for how much of a nightmare this existence is. Mm-hmm. You see Delancey's cue there, kind of, uh, kind of in the midground, turn like absorbing this, and and you see the recognition on his face, mm-hmm. talk like trying to talk himself out of the idea, like oh no no no, but I'm not that guy anymore. I'm I'm a born again cue, and you know it's a lie because you know that what he's hearing Quinn say is actually how he feels. It, he he's actually on board with what Quinn is going through, just not to the extent that Quinn is trying to go through with it. So you didn't get that out of Delancey watching him there? Because there, I, yes. Okay. But I think okay. but there is like there is like a character journey, yes, that's probably more believable for me mm-hmm. if it weren't Delancey. Okay. Because he puts on such a great again, a great other persona at the very beginning and it's very it's almost atypical Delancey Q because again of the sexism that we brought up and which yeah. was a little jarring and off putting. Yeah. And I think that if you wanted to get to that moment at the Q continuum in the desert in the desert house, if you had a different character, say Amanda Rogers, for example, or Carbon Burnson's Q, Q that we're not really familiar with, and you're like, what's been going on with them in the continuum? Maybe those Q would have been more believable and the agency that they got to at the end, mm. you know, from Quinn's sacrifice would be more believable. I just think that it bounces off of Delancey too quickly okay. because the way his character has been established up to this point. Okay. All right. right. That's fair. Yeah. But I also think it would have been interesting, and I don't know I don't know why this was never brought up. It was obviously a temptation, <laughs> you know, in certain scenes between Delancey and Delancey's Q and Jane White, but why didn't anyone really step up and ask either Q? Uh, for help getting back home to the Alpha Quadrant. Yeah. <laughs> in exchange for their help advocating for this particular decision that they needed. I mean, yes, Delancey's Q said that you're not supposed to be here for another hundred years. Mm-hmm. So Jane was like, you're right. We're here because of this reason. Not once in this episode was that ever brought up that they were there because of another alien being's interference. And that drove me crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I, I feel you on that one, too. All right, well, let, let's talk about morals, meanings, messages. I feel like this is a, a heavy episode with the topics, but what do you take away from it? We've mentioned the, the word, and the word is immortality. Yeah. And you know, whether or not it is one thing or another. There's a very interesting connective tissue across like all of the genres of fandoms that I think speak to a great many of us. And it's either in science fiction or fantasy or horror, you know, or, or even in just like, you know, like general, even procedurals, you know, these ideas of immortality and whether it's a blessing or a curse, the ability mm. to live forever. And what do you do with that gift or what do you do with that curse? In one of my all-time favorite fandom tiers, I, I've said this before earlier on when I first started doing Mission Log, Highlander is one of my favorites because it actually deals every single episode with this question of, one, there can be only one, and the question being, if there's only one, then who wants to live forever mm-hmm. when all of the things around you, everyone that you love, everything that you cherish dies around you? What's the point of being the one? Yeah. Who wants to live forever when love must die is the lyric that Queen wrote in probably the thematic song of that series and the movie. Yeah. What good is it to be the one if you're only one left? Quinn said, look at us, talking about the continuum. When life has become futile, meaningless, unendurable, it must be allowed to end. Can't you see that, Captain? For us, disease is immortality. So the big question is, the big moral is for me, what good is an immortal life if it brings you no joy or purpose? Should, as the axiom goes, quote, the candle that burns twice as bright burns half as long, as Dr. Eldon Tyrell said to Rick Deckard in Blade Runner. So there's a huge, obviously, like moral implication to immortality. But I think what Quinn was trying to establish is even if he had the briefest of moments to live a significant portion of a less meaningful life, but something that was very powerful, I should say, let's say less meaningless, I mean, less immortal life, then is that the life that's worth preserving and fighting for? Is that the life that is something that should be cherished and protected? So again, no right mm. or wrong to this. It's just, what do you do with that and how do you see it? So how about you, John? I mean, it's, see, are we? Uh, yeah, I mean, we're yeah. close because I, I, I think that Janeway's directive, Janeway's request to Quinn at the very end she says, okay, we've granted you asylum, but wait, wait, you have this whole new set of experiences in front of you. You get to live a mortal life. I, I, I loved the moment. I, I loved her passion in saying, I like this life. I would love in a different version of this, maybe there's the novel somewhere, what does the immortal get who can then live some years as a mortal, what what does he then get to experience? What are the pains and pleasures that he gets to feel? You know, the, the, there was something really beautiful about that. That, of course, because of the nature of the story that we're telling, has to be ended by the ending that we got. But I I, I love that idea of him finding sort of a new purpose because the clock is ticking. Mm-hmm. But maybe, you know, for him, then the the ultimate mystery was the one that he was going to resolve by meeting his demise. You know, you quoted Queen, I'll quote The Who, and The Seeker 
saying, I won't get to get what I'm after until the day I die. And maybe that was Quinn's last thought before he took that hemlock. We touched a bit on this idea of euthanasia. Is it suicide? Is it murder? How do we want to phrase this? And for somebody in Janeway's position or anybody in that room trying to figure out Quinn's journey and Quinn's desires, how do you judge someone's right to die? It's really about the right. It's not about the action. It's not about the aftermath. It's about the right. And we have to ask, is death sometimes the preferable answer where the alternative is pain, whether it's physical or emotional or existential? Who can possibly answer that for somebody else? And I thought the script was very clever in making that weight there, but also trying to deflect and say we can't answer that question. That can only be answered by the person whose life it is. And then just to echo what you were saying about the the nightmare of immortality, and we've seen it before in other Star Trek, this idea that life only has meaning because of death, that this proposed fantasy idea of immortality would actually be a waking nightmare the longer it went on. We can't actually conceive of immortality. If we said that we want to live longer, cool. What's longer? Another 100 years? 1,000 years? 5,000 years? What happens after 100,000 or a million years? What happens when everything around you starts to absolutely crumble into dust, when suns burn out around you? That would be absolute torture for anybody who had to live that. So immortality is very often seen as a curse in our popular fiction. And I think that's for very good reason. It's one of the ways that we humans deal with the idea that we'll die because the alternative almost seems too terrible to comprehend. If, if I may jump in, John. Mm -hmm. So my favorite episode of Highlander is an episode called Timeless, where literally the oldest immortal in the world who's lived over 5,000 years falls in love with a woman who is dying from cancer and will die in a year. <sighs> And the, the great quote of that episode where Duncan McLeod, he talks to another character and says, it doesn't matter if she lives a year or 10 or 100. He'll always feel the pain of losing her because he will never die. Mm -hmm. So that's the great question. You know, what do you do with that time? And are you going to spend that time trying to figure out how you're going to gain immortality for somebody else or have the immortal actually understand the fragility of that time through the eyes of somebody who appreciates it the most? Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. If you'd like to support us directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash mission log for early access to shows and the Mission Log Discord. Our website is missionlogpodcast.com. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, Life Signs. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Adam Brusky, Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, John Mann, Mike Richards, and Mike Shabel. It's a good thing that the other Q wasn't feeling vengeful, that's definitely not a Q with whom you want to have a beef.
and transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 